As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that now as we come to your word that you would help us uh, open our eyes to see. And may we believe all that you have for us. Um, In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Genesis in chapter 17, please. Genesis chapter 17. Uh, I want to read verses 1 through 14. Genesis chapter 17, please. When we were talking about the covenant with Abraham some weeks ago, we didn't get to this, and so it's important for us to make sure we do today. Genesis chapter 17. Hear the word of God. When Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations forever." For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now we've been speaking of covenants for some time. Now we've been, we've been moving from this particular verse in Psalm 25 verse 14, which I hope is, is becoming a part of your mind, uh, your heart, where God says the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. And we speak of friendship with God. We're not talking about a peer kind of friendship. It isn't like we're buddies in that sense. It isn't like that we meet each other's needs. It's not like it's, it's a mutual kind of relationship that we fill him up and he fills us up and all of that sort of thing, as you might in the context of friends. God is God. And he says, I'll treat you as a friend. That is, I will share with you my heart. I will share with you my purpose. I will share with you concerning my creation and my purpose for it and, and what I'm doing here, just like a friend would reveal his heart to another friend. That's the point. And he said, this comes first to those who fear him, that is, who recognize that he is God and thus come to him as God, as creator, as the one who's the authority is the one who's sovereign, is the one who must reveal if anything is to be known about God. He says, he says I'm going, to, I'm going to, to, it's to those who fear me, those who come to submit to me joyfully, who gladly come to listen to me, to obey me, to believe all that I say. To those, he says, I'll make known to them, as a friend would, my heart, 
and that is by making known my covenant to you. That is how we're related to one another. And so what we've done over the last number of weeks, and I won't review all of these as I have been because I'm a bit short of time, but we've, we've considered these covenants, covenants of works, covenants of grace, covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, covenant with David, and most especially, covenant with and through our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, it was Adam representing us all who lost life because of his disobedience. By disobeying, uh, he condemned all of us to death and put us all under the wrath of God. Jesus obeyed for all in him. And he then took the penalty, the curse of the covenant, uh, so that all in him, so that all who believe in him would be forgiven their sins, cleansed, and thus given life, so that all that Adam had lost, the opportunity for life, would now be granted to those who are in Christ, they would actually receive life. So we saw how all of this then sort of came to fruition, was all summed up, tree of life in the Garden of Eden, tree of life in glory on the new earth, and and a day will come when we'll eat of that tree and have life in the very presence of God for all of eternity. What Adam lost... Jesus gained. You see, that's this sense. And we know that because of, uh, because of God revealing to us his, his covenant. Now, the question is, is God's promise trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? And, and how do we know that? Well, the great thing about covenant is that built within covenant, this whole form of covenant, is assurances. We mentioned this idea of an oath curse that when parties to the covenant take a, uh, make covenant together, they bind themselves by their own lives. That is, they cut up an animal and say that, that, that if I break this covenant, then be it unto me that has been done unto this animal. In other words, I'd be killed. And so you get this sense of seriousness. They sense I'm going to guarantee this covenant by my very life. God has done that. We remember that, especially in the context of, uh, of Abraham. He, he, he swore by his own life that he would fulfill all of his promises to Abraham. But not only that, there is a, there's a document that's created. We realized in the Ark of the Covenant were two copies of the, what we would call the Ten Commandments. They stood there in that Ark as a testimony, as a witness to all that God has promised and all the responsibilities of the people that they had promised back to God. They, they were there, so documents exist to always remind. And, and often a meal was, was eaten as a commemoration of, of, of that covenant made. And every time that meal would be eaten, it would be a reminder, it would be a sign, oh yes, these promises were made and and yes we can trust God and signs were given as well Uh, for instance you remember with the covenant with Noah the sign of the rainbow and and probably the most particular the one the most uh, no pun intended fleshed out is this sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham Uh, and so in the new covenant we see signs as well that those things which point and not only point to the promises of God but seal them when we talk about a seal, we mean that which authenticates or that which confirms, that which says this promise is really from God. If you got a letter in the mail and it said it was from the President of the United States, how would you know that it wasn't just a prank from one of your friends? Well, you would look for the presidential seal. 
And if the seal was there, it was really the seal, it was an authentic seal, the seal the president uses, then you'd say, wow, this really came from the president, right? That seal. And so when we talk about these signs being seals, we mean that God is saying, look at this. This is from me. This is my seal. I'm saying what this signifies is really true, and you can really trust it. This is from me. And so these signs, seals, are to help us. They're to confirm the promise of God. They're to authenticate it. We seal things with envelopes with wax and we put a little indent in there and we get this envelope and, and it has this wax seal at least in the old days we don't do that anymore but in the old days you go, oh yes this is this is what's in here really came from this this person right so God seals with these with these signs in the new covenant we have these signs seals of baptism and circumcision what I want to do today is to take up this Sign the seal of the new covenant of baptism. Now, before I get there, let me say this. Number one, I've been here preaching over 21 years. That's around 900 sermons. Bless you. Um, and counting, I suppose, if we get through today. Now, I don't think... And I don't remember every sermon as you do. <laughs> um, uh, or maybe I do remember every sermon as you do. Uh, I, I don't remember if I've ever preached on baptism before. I don't think I have. Um, I may have spoken about baptism on a Wednesday night. And I tried to find the file, but I couldn't. But I think I did. Maybe I didn't. I don't remember that either. I know that Rick and I in Grace 101 spend time on baptism. That's what we talk about these things. So I know there, if you've been through Grace 101, at least when we've taught it, um, that, that you've gotten something about baptism, but that's all. Now the question, of course, is why not? And the answer is not simply that I preach the way that I do, generally not topically, but through Bible books. We've come across baptism before, and I've made mention of it and so forth and so on. But I must confess that I don't like talking about things on Sunday mornings which Christians disagree about. I just don't. Um, so I, I hate to raise these things because I know that there'll be some who go, oh, that's not the view I hold. And others say, well, that is the view I hold. I hope that person's listening to it. And that person's going, blah, 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 blah. I just don't like that. No. So I, I suppose in that sense, I've stayed away from it. And, and, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, uh, you might remember in the days of Isaiah, the prophet. I say you might remember. I don't expect you to. But there was, there was a king named Ahaz. And, uh, and he was going to go to battle against the Assyrians. And everybody thought that Judah was going to lose. And so Isaiah said, God said, ask him for his sign. Now, you may remember, this you may remember, now that the story has been sparked, that Ahaz... It appears humbly, but really pompously said, no, I don't need a sign. I don't need anything from God. I'm fine. We're just going to go into battle. God, you remember, gives a wonderful sign. It's the sign of Emmanuel. God with us, born of a virgin, and all of that. But the point is, 
that Ahaz should have asked him for a sign. When God wants to give a sign, we should take it. We should look at it. We should receive it. Because God is saying, this glorifies me. This tells you something about me. And it's good for you. You need this. For us to say we don't need this would be for us to say, oh God, sorry. I think you're wrong about this. I'm cool. Just leave me alone. I don't need this sign. So we really do need these signs. I know that because God has given them to us. And since it comes from God, then obviously my faith, our faith, needs these signs. So we must take them up. Now gladly, very few, though some, very few would hold that uh, one's particular belief about baptism uh, would uh, save or not save you. We view this in a sense, at least within certain boundary as a non-essential of faith. Now, not everybody believes that. There's a various Christians who believe in what's called baptismal regeneration, which means that the sign itself actually affects the promise, which means that unless you're baptized, then you can't be cleansed of your sins. Uh, those who baptize babies, the Roman Catholics hold that view, and those who don't baptize babies, but in the Christian church tradition, hold that view. And so, so on either end, you can find anybody who holds that view. That's not our view. So we, we don't think, at least within the boundaries of those two extremes, that this is essential for your salvation. Most look to the thief on the cross and say he wasn't baptized, but yet he was saved. Although there are some sticklers who say, but it did rain. Um... <laughs> But then it would have been a sprinkling or a pouring, so then the uh, immersionists wouldn't like that. But I bet it could have gotten them all wet if it was really rain, but I don't know that we need to go there. But, uh, but, but to say it's not necessary for salvation, but it's important, it's significant. God has given to us this sign of baptism. We ought to take, we ought to take, advantage, take advantage of it. Sadly, of course, these views of baptism can separate Um, believers in Christ because we're unable to agree. I don't think it's an unwillingness to agree. I think it's an inability to agree. And by inability, I mean that that we'd like to agree, but we both read the Bible and, and we just can't. I mean, I read it and go, this is it. So what baptism means, and this is how much water you use, and this is for whom baptism is. And somebody else reads it and they go, nope, more water, Older people. Um, we're not unwilling. And in fact, we can agree on everything else, which is fascinating to me. We can believe in the authority of Scripture that's infallible and inerrant. We can believe in the, in the work of Christ, in the person of Christ, in the virgin birth of Christ, in the miracles of Christ, and, and, and the fact that there's salvation through faith in Christ alone, and it's necessary to have a, a new birth from the Holy Spirit, a work of the Holy Spirit before we can come to faith, and, and that Christ rules and reigns, and, and that he's sovereign over all things, and he's coming back. And We can believe all of that. In fact, even those of us who belong to this tradition of the Reformation, we can, we can agree on every nook and cranny of all of that, and yet for some reason still disagree about this one and so it's painful for me quite frankly I have to go through this because I, on the one hand I'm convinced of what I believe the scripture teaches on the other hand I look in the eyes of friends who are like me in every other way <laughs> and they hold a different view and I, I just don't like doing this on Sundays I, I just don't know now that I'm stuck in this whole covenant series, 
so I don't like series. I'm stuck. I can't skip signs of the covenant. Now, we'll do communion probably next Sunday if I get finished with this Sunday. Stop apologizing. Uh, but, uh, uh, um, uh, and, and that's, that's easier at least, right? I mean, it's warm and fuzzy. But, but this one sort of uh, divides us and it's just painful to have to walk through there, walk through this. So what I want to do really is to try to find places where we all agree and then talk some about the distinctions of our particular church tradition and all of that and what we believe about baptism. Hopefully without missing the real point. The problem with all of this is that we start talking about how much water to use and whether this is for babies or not. We miss the point of it. It's so easy to miss the point that what we're talking about when this bowl of water or this pool of water, how much water you want to have, uh, uh, what that tells me is that there's cleansing for all who believe in Jesus. And that cleansing comes because Christ has lived for us a cleansed, a perfect life. And that Christ has died for us so that the penalty for our sins is washed away. So every time you see water, you should go, hallelujah. Look what Christ has done. Now that freaks people at the restaurant out when you say, I'd like some water, and they bring you water, and you go, hallelujah, look at this water. They go, it's, it's water. Want some lemon with that? Uh, but but that's, that's what it tells us all the time, you see. So we mustn't miss that and all the little squabblings and all of that. But, but let me lay out, because I think it's important for us to get a grasp as best we can. And again, you hear my fallibility. The best we can as to what God intends for us to understand, to see, to know in baptism. Because you see, it's not enough for us to say, this is what baptism means to me. It's really irrelevant what baptism means to me. It's really irrelevant what I like about it or what I don't like about it or when it's done this way, I like that. When it's, all of that's irrelevant because I'm not the standard. I didn't give the sign. You didn't give the sign. God gave the sign. And so we need, as in everything in the scriptures and everything with our life, we need to go to God and we say, well, God, what's this mean? Why did you give this to us? We do it in the most basic of things. We go to God and say, God, why did you give me life? What does that mean? God, I'm a male. What does that mean? God, I'm a female. What does that mean? God, God, how is it that we relate together in all of these things? You're the definer of my life because you're the creator. And if you've given me a sign, why? What do you mean by it? An 18th century hymn writer gave, at least for me, what I refer to as one of my perpetual prayers, which is, tune my heart to sing your grace. In other words, change me. Work in me so that everything you give is received by my heart and I say thank you. And I praise you for it. I don't say, ooh, I don't like that. No, 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 no. He's God, the sovereign one. And so my perpetual prayer is that little expression of that old hymn, tune my heart, you know, so that 
I may sing your grace all the time. And, and we must do that in the context of baptism. And so I know that we come from various traditions and all of that. And, and I know that it's more than just an intellectual thing. It's more than just a theological thing. It's more than just an academic thing. It's more than something we read. There's all kinds of ties emotionally to our views of baptism. Let's just face it and be honest about that. Some of you are reactionary against what you were taught about baptism as, as you were growing up. And, and so you, you go uh, one way. Uh, others of you who are reacting against something else. Some of you embraced what you were taught and, and you know the people that taught it to you and you're tied to them and that's great and, and others of you not and so forth and so on. All of that's just here. <clears throat> so let's just kind of tackle this, tackle this together. We do, but finally this, this is my last little apology. I got to get through this this week because I can't do this again next week. Um, so we may be here till noon. But, Know this, though, in all of that, so that we're just simply, we're just simply clear, okay? If, in the midst of all of this, you become convinced that uh, your children, uh, who are too young to profess faith on their own, should be baptized, then pursue that. If you have never been baptized before, and... Uh, that is, as an infant, as a child, or in any context of a Christian church in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you've never been baptized before, no matter your condition, uh, you need to be if you're a believer in Christ. So don't neglect that. Be baptized. And remember this too, that if you disagree with the view of baptism that I present, especially as it pertains to Infants and children know that you're welcome here. Know that. I'll keep doing it and teaching it so I may drive you crazy. But you're welcome here. We understand this in the context of the body of Christ and baptism. Okay, we good? You love me? I was going to get mad. I was going to think I don't respect your view. I might disagree with it, but trust me, I've probably read more about your view than you have. All right? And agonize more. I've lost more sleep over this topic than maybe all of us combined in this room. Because you probably haven't lost any. And I've lost nights. <laughs> so, there you go. We're good, okay? Okay, here we go. Now, oddly enough, I'm going to begin in Genesis chapter 17 and talk about circumcision. Now, those of you who know me and know the view that I hold know exactly why I'm doing this. But this is where... God speaks most about covenant signs. One of the most difficult things in all of the scripture is there's no real good explanation anywhere about these things. They're just sort of given to us. And we're to use it here as if we know what it's all about. And so here in Genesis 17, we have a covenant sign and, and God seems to go at some length to speak to us about it. It comes to Abraham, whose name is changed in the midst of this, who's name we know as Abraham. Now, note the context. Remember the context. And the context is this. Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, 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 and, and makes covenant with him, promises to him. Remember that he's going to bless him, and he's going to be a blessing. He's going to make him a great nation, thus he implied in descendants. And that through him, through his seed, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All right? Odd, because at that point in time, Genesis, uh, Abraham is relatively old, Sarah is barren, and they have no children. And so the big question then is, uh, how is this all going to come about? Genesis 15, uh, God confirms his covenant, but, but, but Abraham says, God, show me something. 
Uh, can this really be true? And so God makes covenant. Remember, he cuts the animal, takes the oath, swears by his own life that he'll fulfill the promise to Abraham that he'll have land, that he'll be a nation, that he'll have descendants and all of that. Then you remember in Genesis 16, uh, still no heir. So uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, gives her maidservant Hagar to Abraham to conceive a child, which they do. The child is born. It's clear to Sarah, at least, and also then to Abraham, that this is not the child of promise. And so now we come to chapter 17. There is a child by Abraham, but not by Abraham and Sarah, who isn't the child of promise. And now God comes to reiterate the promise to Abraham, his promises to Abraham, and to give him a sign. Now, given the context, presumably, this sign is to say, trust me. This sign should help you. It should Im- increase. It should, it, should, it should strengthen your faith. I'm going to give you a sign. Now you'll notice how it's all laid out. God comes to him and he says, Okay, Abraham, we're in covenant together. I don't want you to be confused, however, what this means. Yes, you've come by faith and I've counted you as being righteous in my sight. But realize that now that you come to me and we're together in all of this, you need to walk blamelessly, faithfully. And then he says, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you. In the New International Version, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, in the New International Version, there's a really nice expression here. It says, as for me, this is my covenant. This is is what I'm doing. He says, this is my covenant. And And he says that you're going to be the father of many nations. So he changes his name from Abraham, the exalted father, to Abraham, the father of many nations. And, and so, and, and again, he says, you're going to be exceedingly fruitful. That is, you'll have descendants. Kings will come from you. Nations will come from you. I'm going to establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you through the generations, which is going to be an everlasting covenant. It's for you and your offspring. You're going to have land and all of that. So, so this whole covenant that God has made with Abraham is affirmed. And then he says, I'm going to give you a covenant sign. Notice how he puts it, verse 9. And God says to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Meaning, you shall walk blamelessly before me. Now, when we get to Sinai and the law comes, we'll see more of what that means. But for now, he says, you're mine, Abraham. Live like it. You say you have faith in me. Live like it. You're in covenant with me. Walk with me. And so he says, I want you to to keep my covenant and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Okay, so he says, all of a sudden, he's equating his covenant promises with his covenant sign. Now, God's covenant with Abraham isn't circumcision simply. It's all that circumcision stands for. Okay? And so what we have here is a very close tie between the sign and what it signifies. Now, we know that. For instance, a soldier could say, I'm fighting for the flag. Now you know he's not fighting for the flag, that piece of cloth. He's fighting, however, for all that flag signifies. You see, what it signifies in the sign are so closely related to to see a flag to a soldier is to see freedom. To see a flag to a soldier is to see our country. To see a flag for our soldiers is to see everything that flag represents. So you can say, I'm fighting for my country. I'm fighting for my family. I'm fighting for freedom. I'm fighting for the flag. And so Abraham is able to say, God is able to say to Abraham, this is the covenant, this sign. Well, that isn't it simply 
position if you circumcise all these people, then everything is fine. It's, it's that my covenant with you began in chapter 12 and the promises. And this sign signifies, this sign relates to, confirms all of that. And so he said, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of words. And I read all that. Verse 12. He who is eight days old, so the children, and then every male in the, in, in, throughout their generations, every eight-day-old son, and even every foreigner, that is everyone who's in their household, in the household of an Israelite, every man would then be circumcised. So what do we learn by this? The one we learn is the sign and that which signified are very closely tied together. That will help us in the New Testament passages of baptism. Oftentimes we read a passage in the New Testament about baptism and it gives the impression that baptism saves us. No, 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 no. When God speaks of a covenant sign, he's able to use that sign to signify all that is true in it. So baptism doesn't save any more than circumcision saved. Baptism isn't the covenant any more than circumcision is the covenant. But baptism signifies all of God's promises as circumcision did. I realize too that in the context with Abraham, this sign of circumcision meant that from your seed will come the blessing. From your seed will come this very one who will bless all of the nations of the earth. And also this sign was a bloody sign. It was a cutting sign. There was blood associated with this. Blood in the scripture always says that cleansing is needed. Cleansing is promised. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no cleansing. So if you read through the Old Testament, what you'll find is the word uncircumcision can be used synonymously with the word unclean. So that circumcision can be used to mean clean. Circumcision, forgiven. And so there's a promise here of forgiveness. There's a promise here of of cleansing in this sign. It also attaches this person to this whole Israelite community, this covenant community. But it's not simply a sign of ethnicity because it was given also to foreigners who were in the household. So they weren't Israelites. They didn't become Israelites in, 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 in some sort of biological, ethnic sense. They were still whoever they were from whatever ethnic background they happened to be. But they were part of this covenant community, meaning that these promises now that are signified by circumcision, promise of relationship with God, promise of forgiveness of sins, promise to be, um, to be part of this land of God, part of the, to be this people of God, these promises are for you. You carry the sign of those promises. Now what would circumcision mean for this eight-day-old boy who was being circumcised? Well, at the moment, it wouldn't mean anything. Because you see, it doesn't affect all that it promises. In other words, it doesn't bring to pass the faith of Abraham. It doesn't bring to pass cleansing. It doesn't bring to pass all that's promised. That Abraham and everybody after him knew would come by faith. In fact, um, Paul in Romans chapter 4 cuts to the chase here in verse 11. And he speaks of this circumcision that Abraham received. And he says this, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, he had faith. Now, 
This circumcision seals it, in other words, authenticates. The question is, what does it confirm? What does it authenticate? Does it authenticate or confirm something about Abraham? Or does it authenticate and confirm something about God? Or both? Well, in a sense, it says, oh yes, God says, you believed, I counted you as righteousness. Now here is a sign of that righteousness. But you see, that might be true for Abraham, but it wouldn't be true for the eight-day-old boys. They had that faith, they're too young, they're just eight-day-old boys. What would it confirm, what would authenticate then? Not something about them, but something about God. God said, all who come to me in faith, I will count as righteous. Just like I did with Abraham. And so you see, the sign confirms not something true of the person receiving it, at least in ancient Israel, but it confirmed that which is true about God, his promise. So, so where would one look, if you will, if there was a circumcision? Well, you'd look at that. It's a baby and something's happening. But in the heart, you would look to God. He would say, ah. So a little boy growing up circumcised in ancient Israel would realize that one day. And what would he think? What would he think about that sign? He'd think, I belong to this community of the circumcised. I belong to this community of people upon whom God has put his promise. These promises are for me. But, but, but this signifies that there's cleansing in this promise. I need to be cleansed. This circumcision should be not simply something outward, but inward, that is, of the heart. As the history of Israel would progress, the prophets would come and say, God will circumcise your hearts. And also say, circumcise your own heart. Something God would do and a command for us. Meaning this is important, this is necessary. And so this boy would know, okay, it isn't just to be an external thing, but an internal thing of the heart. I must believe. And the promises are not mine until I believe. You see how that works. I mean, here is someone who has the very sign of the covenant upon him, the very sign of God, and he says, I belong here. These promises are given to this people. These promises, therefore, to me, because I'm part of this, but, but I realize that I, too, need to be cleansed, and I realize that that isn't affected by the outward sign. That's something that must be true of the heart. Therefore, I must believe. And if I believe, then the promises are mine. And if I don't, then I'm just like the uncircumcised. And I'll be cut off. What would it mean for the parent? You have a little boy, you have a little boy. And well, Before I get to that, what about your little girls? Just very quickly. You need to understand that in that culture, as is true throughout all Christian culture as well, in a, in a real sense, just not in the context of signs now, obviously a little girl couldn't receive the sign of circumcision. I trust, I need no diagrams. But... Because of the headship of the male, she was included. But if you had a little boy, so if you had a little girl, you'd think all of that without circumcision. You had a little boy, you take him to be circumcised, your mom and dad. What are you thinking? What are you thinking all of this means? You're thinking, thank you, God. You're thinking, we live in a community of the circumcised. We live in a community where you have given your promises to us. 
We live in a community where you have said that if you come to me by faith, I will declare you to be righteous. We, we live part of a community, God, where you have made these promises to us and therefore us and our children. Therefore, I, I must teach my children these promises. I must, I must tell them about these promises. I must raise them in such a way that they'll, they'll, they'll rely upon these promises of God. I, I, must, I must live in such a way that, 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 that my faith will show them that they need faith as well in God and that God is good. So that's how I'll live. So I'm bringing my child that, that he may be marked out with this sign of the covenant so that he'll grow up knowing And I'll help him. He'll grow up knowing that there's cleansing, righteousness through faith in God. And we must walk with him. So now we come to the new covenant of baptism. Circumcision no longer is necessary for various reasons. Primarily that we no longer need a bloody sacrifice, a bloody sign to show what Christ has done because the blood has been shed. No need for blood. So we don't need that in this sign. But now water points to that which was promised and now is true in Christ, which is cleansing. In fact, so much so cleansing in this sign and so much the sign is related to what is signified that the apostles in speaking of, of, of the gospel can call people to it and say, come to this that your sins may be washed away. For instance, in Acts in chapter 2 and verse 38 is... Peter's preaching. He puts it like this at the end of his Pentecost sermon as we know it. He said, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So close is baptism related to forgiveness of sins. And he says, Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now we know that baptism doesn't affect the forgiveness of sins, it isn't just an external thing that happens automatically. But he says, you believe, so I can say baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so we see that in the context of all of the scriptures. In fact, so much so is this sign and what it signifies so closely related that Paul could write in Romans 6 this. He says, do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, what's Paul speaking about? He's speaking about the covenant promise that those who believe in Jesus will be those who have died with Christ and been raised with him. Now, at the moment of your baptism, is that what happens? Even for a believer, no, that's happened. It's true already. The baptism just signifies that. Now, how did it happen? It happened by a work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uniting us together with Christ. That happens when? Well, we don't know quite know when. <laughs> Did it happen right at our faith? Did it happen right before our faith? Logically before, but, 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 but in terms of time, we can't tell. We just know that at faith we said, yes, that's true. We're speaking here of that which baptism signifies, the work of the Spirit 
But the covenant could be called even baptism because so close are the sign and what it signifies related. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, which we read as a responsive reading this morning just to set all this up, we see that Paul juxtaposes circumcision and baptism together and he speaks of it all in the context of Christ and he speaks of all of it in the context of the work of the Holy Spirit. For instance, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, we read this. (coughs) Excuse me. In him that is in Jesus... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He says, you were circumcised in Jesus. That's odd, isn't it? He said, don't worry, nobody used any hands. Oh, really? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. See, cut off your sinfulness by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, circumcision, baptism altogether, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He said, listen, the Holy Spirit did this work. And we could say that it was a circumcision, a cleansing. We could say that it was a baptism, a cleansing. We could say it was pointed to in the Old Testament by circumcision that would bring cleansing to all who had faith as Abraham had faith. Or it could be a Cleansing as we see it in baptism wrought by the work of Jesus. You see all of that now in him is fulfilled. Old covenant, new covenant, one sign, the other. But really by a work of the spirit to which each pointed. So now you see when we come to baptism in the New Testament we see oh yes we can refer to. The washing away of sins as baptism. We can, we can show how closely related the sign is that it does indeed refer to, confirm, authenticate this promise of God. Now where should our eyes go when a person is being baptized? Does this baptism say for sure this person has faith and here is the confirmation of it, the water whether they're immersed in it or whether they're not. We go, no, 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 no. It doesn't authenticate that. And how do we know that? We know that just as circumcision didn't affect faith because there were a lot of circumcised men in Israel who didn't believe. We also know that there are baptized people, whether they were baptized on profession of faith, whether they were baptized as children, who do not believe. If baptism did it, I would take a hose to Massachusetts Street. All right? Or a, a pool. I would go to the pool and I would just indiscriminately dunk people. Right? It doesn't, that doesn't work, you see. It isn't that, is it? It doesn't affect it. It doesn't make it happen. It's not that. So, so what does it confirm? What does it authenticate? What does it say? Where should we look? We're not saying that because you've been baptized in water, it means that for certain you're saved. No, no, no. We all then should look and we see the water. And we should say, God cleanses. We should say, wow, it's his promise. This is his sign. He says, if you trust in me, I'll cleanse you. I trust in you, I'm cleansed. You see how that goes? And so for all of us who see a baptism, what should we be thinking? We should be thinking about God. We say we live in a community of the baptized. We live in a community where God has given this promise. And what is this promise? This promise is all who believe in Jesus will be washed of their sins, will be cleansed. 
And then we begin to work that away, work that down. Oh, I see. That promise is for us. Do I believe? If I believe, if I'm a sinner, if I believe, then yes, then I'm washed, I'm cleansed. Baptism signifies that. And God gives us this sign and he says, so use it. So that every time this happens, everybody says, hallelujah, look at the promise of God. Now, now how about babies? And I only have two minutes, which is probably good. What about little ones? Why do we do that? Well, a number of reasons. Number one, is that the last time God spoke about a covenant sign that would talk about cleansing, he included the children. And he's never said anything to the contrary since. He just hasn't. And you say, well, that's an argument from silence. So be it. I don't have anything else to say other than he didn't say that. He didn't say, don't do this anymore. But he did say, the last time he spoke about it, which is in Genesis 17, the last time he spoke about it, he said, include the children. Why would he say that when the sign didn't affect the solution? He said it because I want you to think about me and I want you to know that in the context of covenant, this promise is for you and for your children. In fact, when Paul, or excuse me, when Peter makes his appeal in the day of Pentecost, he says something that to the ear of an Israelite would take him all the way back to Genesis 17 and he would say, this is just like that. Peter says this, Brothers, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, Abraham would have heard exactly the same thing. This is for your children. And this is for all who are far off. That is all who are in your household and who come from other places, from other lands. Circumcise them. They're here. Give them the sign of the covenant. They're here. And we realize that ultimately this is affected only for those whom God calls, grants faith. And so if you're standing on the day of Pentecost in that moment, you were an Israelite. There wasn't anybody else there. And most likely, you were a Jewish man on the day of Pentecost, standing there. You would not have, I would propose, a category in your brain for a sign from God of cleansing that did not include your children. Unless, Peter said, now this is way different than the last one we had. It's water, not circumcision. And, and don't give it to your kids. But he didn't. How else? And, and then as we read through the book of Acts, we read all kinds of household baptisms now. We don't know who exactly were in those households, whether they were infants, children, or anything. But it would be very odd if there weren't um, infants, children in those households. There were so many of them, as well as foreigners in those households. And the head of the house becomes a believer. The whole household is baptized. They may say, well, everybody in that household must have believed. Perhaps. Although there's a very curious one, the Philippian jailer. You might remember him. There's an earthquake, and uh, he's uh, saved. And then he asks to be baptized. Notice, and this is 
you'll have to take my word for this, a better translation of the Greek than you have in your New International Version. I always hate to do that to you, but trust me. Or not. Um, and Paul and Silas, verse 30, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is verse 31. And they said, Paul and Silas, to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took uh, them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized, that is the Philippian jailer, at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he, singular, the Philippian jailer, had believed in God. He believed his whole family was baptized. Now you may say, he was thankful that he believed, therefore, everybody in his household could believe. That's a possibility. That's the sense you get when you read the NIV. But this is a little more faithful translation. He believed. And not only that, just like in Israelite families, in Christian families, we raise our kids as if they're heirs to the promise, not that they're not. The question for all of us is, do we raise our kids like Israelite kids, that is, that this promise is for you, or like Canaanite kids, like, oh, don't worry about this promise. We raise them as if this promise is for them. In fact, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he directly addresses the children. He says, children. He doesn't say, dad, tell your children, or mom, tell your children, or pastor, tell your children. He says, children, obey your parents. He does the same thing in the letter to the church in Colossae. But one of the most startling points is in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. And this is a passage about marriage, and it's really a passage about marriage and divorce. And it's really about whether or not a, a, an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse should be divorced. And in verse 14, verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. Unclean. If this were Genesis, uncircumcised. Not a part of the covenant. Not an heir to the promise. Would be unclean. But otherwise, as it is, they're holy. Doesn't mean they're saved, but in some sense set apart by God, recognized by Him as being different than children of unbelievers. So we roll all that together. We're not told not to. It seems to be in the mindset of an Israelite to baptize his children, give the sign of the covenant to children. And our kids in context of our lives, are in some sense considered by God to be holy. So finally this. What, I'm sorry for going a little over, but for those of you teaching Sunday school or in Sunday school, I'll, I'll try to do better next week. Though I never do, and I'm really sorry. I am really sorry. But finally this. Three minutes. What does baptism mean to a person who comes to faith as an adult and receives baptism. It means this. 
I'm part of a community of the baptized. I'm part of a community that has the promise of God. The promise of God is to save all those who come to Jesus in repentance and faith. I'm a sinner. This promise is for sinners. I believe this promise is for me. Now I'm to walk before God in faith. And as I receive this sign of the covenant, it means I belong to this community of people. I belong to God. I'm cleansed. I'm to walk with him. Focus of attention. Not on the person. Focus of attention upon God. Did the water affect the washing? No. What did? The work of Christ, a work of the Holy Spirit, faith. After a baptism of someone on profession of faith, who do we congratulate? God, way to go. You did it. You were faithful to your promise. But what does it mean to a kid? What does it mean to a kid? An infant, little James Frederick this morning. All it meant to him is that I messed up his life for about two minutes when I put water on his head. Um, It means this. As he grows up and as he sees other children, other people being baptized, he should say, I belong to the community of the baptized. The promise of salvation through faith in Christ is for me. I need to be cleansed. I know, because of the promise of God, that if I trust in Jesus, I will be cleansed. So he walks up, grows up, always knowing this belongedness. Always knowing this promise is really for him. Always knowing that if he calls upon the Lord, then he will be washed. Always knowing that if he doesn't call upon the Lord, he'll be just like the unbaptized, unwashed, condemned. Many times people come to me and say, I want to wait to have my kid baptized because my baptism as a believer was so important to me. And I'll just tell you, and this means pretty much nothing, that my baptism as an infant is very significant to me. Because I knew there was always one place I belonged with the baptized. And I always knew that the promise of salvation was for me. And I always knew that just like water washes dirt off my body, that the blood of Christ cleanses from sin. And I always knew that it wasn't automatic. I always knew that it didn't happen just because I was baptized at six weeks old. But I knew that by faith, by faith, my sins would be cleansed. And that's what we mustn't miss in all of this. And all the discussions about who's right and who's wrong and how you do it and how you don't, all of that and who's for. The point of the matter is, no matter where we go with baptism, we mustn't ever forget the gospel and what it signifies. There's cleansing from sin because of the work of Christ through faith in him. And there's no 
other way. But this way works. Because this way is really from God. Let's pray. Father.